now I invite Scott Pupilo forward. He'll be reading for us out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to continue our study in 1 Thessalonians this morning. We're going to be uh, in verse 17 of chapter 2 and all the way to the end of chapter 3. Thanks, brother. Thessalonians 2, 17 through 3, 13, and it's on page 1173 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along that way. All right, so, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions for yourselves for you yourselves know that we are destined for this for when we were with you we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. We will be very soon, uh, even just a couple of weeks, I think, we'll be getting into some talk about the end times and some of the discussions around what will be happening in the last 
days. So I want to uh, get you thinking about that. I know well, many of you already are, and I see uh, from time to time you'll see folks even uh, posting things about all of this. And that was part of my heart in studying First Thessalonians, just to get us thinking some about th- the things to come. And uh, so as Paul said right there at the very end of that, of that reading, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints, uh, we're going to be thinking about that in great detail. Not great detail, but in some detail uh, here before long. So, um, so anyways, we'll, we're going to have an exciting study of, of all of that really soon. But let's, uh, let's pray before I dive into what is before us today. Lord, I just uh, I ask for your help. Um, it's very difficult to stand before your word and to open it up. There are many complexities and things that are difficult to understand. Some things are very straightforward. We hope we want to emphasize those and make those clear. And the things that are harder, Lord, to take time to really ponder and, and chew on. So God, give me grace today as I open your word. I pray for your help to claim, to proclaim it and uh, not only the, uh, with the right words and in truth, but Lord, with the right heart and attitude. God, grant me that grace, I pray. And I pray for the people as they hear, that they realize this is an active listening. This is not just standing by and, uh, you know, opportunity to nap and kind of, uh, you know, just doze off. Lord, this is a time to actively listen and learn and grow and reflect. And so I pray for the people that they would Hear your word and receive it as your word, just as the Thessalonian church did. And Holy Spirit, that you would come and apply it to their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, I've titled today's sermon, The Bird in the Rafters. And I've taken that title from an illustration that I discovered just a couple days ago in a book written by a woman named Janie Ortland. Am I saying that right? Janie. I do that every time. Like she, she told me last night, she was like, Janie. And I was like, Janie, for some reason. Anyway, Janie Ortland. Janie Ortland, however you say it. Wrote a book. Sorry, Janie, if you ever hear this, Janie. Um, she wrote a book titled Fearlessly Feminine in the year 2000. And in one of the early chapters in that book, she tells a story of how one day while her husband, Ray, was preaching, a bird flew into their sanctuary. And her husband, Ray, standing up there, laboring away in the pulpit, trying not to be distracted or to allow his congregation to be distracted by this intruder, this bird that had come in. (laughs) You can even imagine. The bird was in. And as it moved around from one rafter to another, fluttering and making noise, It could not be denied any longer, right? It was there. It was making itself known. Janie, did I say it right that time? Gosh, why can't I remember that? I I keep reading Janie. I see the word Janie. Janie likens the bird to the culture and its ideas and says that the church has allowed the culture inside its worship and inside its programs And just like the bird, it has become a big distraction and it's causing a big disruption in our programs. People are not listening to the word of God or paying attention to what the Lord is saying. 
what the Lord is doing. They're looking at the bird flying around in the rafters and being entertained and amused and distracted by the bird. I want to suggest that there are a number of birds flying around in the church's metaphorical rafters today, and a great many people in the church are ooing and aahing over them and being distracted. These birds fly around and keep, uh, keep us distracted and, and keep us from the real issues and things that are going on that we need to focus on. Sometimes if the birds are not chased out of the building, they build nests and even kind of sort of become a part of the furniture and make their way into the everyday life and work of the church to make themselves at home and bring all kinds of other problems with them. Again, likening these birds to ideas, outside ideas, cultural ideas, making their way into the church and resting and being at home. Well, today, Paul is going to help us chase away a few birds in the church rafters. And I want to focus on three. We could probably pick out a hundred to focus on, but I see three that perhaps... um, I think Paul would have us chase away today. We could probably again point out a few more, but but three I feel like is good. If we can start with three, then that's that's good. Those three big things, big ideas or thoughts that I want to try and convey today that I think will help us chase away some of these birds. As we begin, let's get a quick snapshot of what is going on here in this little letter. As I've explained to you in weeks prior... I'm not going to go into all the details again, but Felicia, if you do have that map accessible, go ahead and pull that up when you get a moment. Paul was on a missionary journey to spread the gospel when he came to this uh, city, Thessalonica. And after preaching a few times, he was run out of town, which you can read about in Acts 17. Acts 17 kind kind of gives you some of the backstory there. And as he describes here in this letter, he was in Athens when he was overcome with concern for the church. He'd been run out of town after just, a, we believe, maybe a few weeks. Some speculate that maybe he was there, maybe a few months, we're not sure. But it was a short time, not really long enough for him to get across everything he wanted to get across to this these new fledgling group of believers. He was run out of town. And he went down to... Athens, which you can see there on the map. Again, I'm not going to go into every detail, but up here is Thessalonica. He makes his way down here to Athens. And when he's in Athens, he's been gone from the church a few months, and he's overcome with concern and feeling burdened about them. And so he sends uh, Timothy to go up and check in on them. And then sometime later, Timothy returns with a report which, according to verse 6 of our passage today, is very positive. Timothy sees lots of good things. So these are the facts of the situation. And Paul's outlining those facts in the section we're looking at today. So again, I don't need to go into all the detail. But but Paul, what's interesting about this passage, to me anyways, is I read it over and over again, seeking a nugget or something to share with you this morning. I was intrigued by the fact that Paul doesn't stop with the surface details. He views the entire situation through the lens of his faith. Right? He's got his his gospel and faith glasses on, 
which influence everything that he sees. And that's coming through his letter here. When Paul looks at the situation, what does he see? He sees spiritual warfare is what he sees. In other words, the world is a battlefield, a spiritual battlefield. And if there ever was a time for us in our lifetimes that we might grasp that, it is now with everything going on around us. But this is going to be my first, I'm going to call them observations today. This is my first observation, is that the world is a spiritual battlefield. So take notice of the spiritual battlefield all around you. As we go along, you'll see that I'm going to connect each of these points or observations with a metaphorical bird in the rafters, so to speak, that needs to be chased away. Some idea that's crept into the church that we need to chase away. And we're going to see that in a moment as we go through. But the first observation to make is that uh, the world all around us is a spiritual battlefield. Look at the last uh, paragraph of chapter 2 with me, if you've got your Bible there, starting in verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, he's saying, I'm with you in spirit, I'm thinking about you, you're in my heart, Um, but I was torn away. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. As we've seen before, Paul wanted to go back to Thessalonica and to see them, but he couldn't. He loved these people and they brought him joy, as he says in verse 20, right? People in your life that maybe live at a distance that bring you great joy and you want to see them. Paul was feeling that. Yet something kept him from coming. Paul doesn't tell us what the surface issue is. Was it his schedule, right? I'm too busy. I got too much going on. Was it sickness? Was it some kind of danger? What was the issue? He doesn't say. We're not sure. If you were to go to Acts chapter 17, which gives us a little bit of the backstory, verse 9 says this. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So uh, the authorities were coming after Paul and his associates and and locking them up or preventing them from doing the ministry that they were wanting to do. And some sort of agreement was struck between Jason and the authorities Jason was someone who was helping Paul and uh, and the folks that were with him. But there was some kind of an agreement that was made. Perhaps Jason made some kind of pledge for Paul uh, that he wouldn't return in exchange for his release that day. Maybe he said, yeah, Paul will never come back to Thessalonica if you'll just let him go. Right. Let him let him go. Let him go do uh, what he needs to do. We're not sure, but some speculate that maybe that's what's going on. So Paul couldn't come back because there was some kind of agreement. But Paul doesn't tell us. Here in our chapter this morning, Paul simply says in verse 18, Satan hindered us from going to see them. So according to Scripture, 
Satan is not just some kind of mythological figure or some, you know, personification of evil or something, some sort of a generalization, an idea of evil with, uh, you know, human characteristics or something. No, Satan is a real being. The leader of a rebellion of fallen angels. The scriptures describe him as the father of lies, as a murderer, as our adversary, as the great dragon, as the devil, where devil means slanderer, the evil one, our enemy. So why would Satan care so much, given all these, you know, wild, big, scary titles? Why would someone like that care about Paul not going back to see these people? What's going on? What's going on here that this rebel army led by Satan, all these fallen angels, would care to keep Paul from visiting friends? Was it just some ordinary road trip? Was Paul going up to help clean out someone's basement? Yeah, man, I'll come up with some buddies and we'll, we'll hoe it out and, you know, all that stuff that you've had collecting since, you know, last Christmas. We'll clean it up. Was that what he was doing? Was, was he hoping to catch a triathlon with his buddies or have a barbecue? Well, if we read on down, we can get a feel for what Paul's plans were, and maybe that'll give us a sense of why Satan was so concerned with Paul going back to see them. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3 with me. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these Afflictions, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. The believers were suffering and Paul wanted to go and establish them and strengthen them and help them and support them in their hour of trial. Right? A little further down in verses 9 and 10, Paul gives us a bit more information. For what thanksgiving, he says, can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Because Paul and his associates had been run out of town so quickly. They were not able to to give or to teach the full regimen, you might say, of the fundamentals of the faith. They were in the process of teaching and building the believers up and establishing the church when they were run out. So Paul felt like he didn't get to communicate everything he needed to to this little church. Some speculate that maybe teaching on the second coming of Jesus was one of the topics that Paul was wont to give more information about and yet was unable because of the circumstances, which is why he talks about it, which we'll get into here in the next few weeks. Talks about it so much in this letter. Paul was wanting to go and do some more teaching and some more instruction to build them up and give them some of those missing pieces, so to speak, that he wasn't able to get across before. And Satan, the great enemy of God and of the church, kept him from going to do this thing. Satan wanted to rob them of this teaching. He wanted to keep them from strengthening the believers in the midst of their afflictions. Sometimes I think we tend to think of Satan as just like a big boogeyman, right? Hiding out under the bed and just popping out to kind of scare us and 
frustrate our lives or giving us nightmares or that sort of thing. We think of him merely in those terms. And perhaps sometimes that is the case. He just wants to scare us, perhaps. Often I do think God will allow Satan to test us. And at times it can simply appear like an inconvenience or a frustration. I'm sure Paul felt that way about his plans here. But seeing this world as a spiritual battlefield actually makes sense of many of the challenges we face in life, especially as believers. And they give us some understanding as to what Satan is, was trying to do here. One thing Paul was able to teach the Thessalonian church before he was run out of town was the fact that trials will come as a result of your faith. Look at verse 4 in chapter 3 with me. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Paul did get that much across, right? He said challenges are going to come. Paul told them trials will come. Don't be surprised. We are at war. Spiritual war, right? But one of the birds up in the rafters of the church today that I think is a problem has made itself at, made itself at home in the church. It's distracting the church. Is this idea that all is well? All is well. There is no war. There's no problem. No conflict. Peace, peace. All is peace. Just relax and chill. Stop being so uptight. Crank the music up. Just have fun. All of your religion and all your doctrine, that's the big problem. Stop teaching. Stop telling people right from wrong. There's no problem. Just love people. Everything will be fine. Just go hug the guy who's trying to kill you. It'll be fine. That's the answer. Not all the teaching about the cross and the blood and forgiveness and atonement. That's a bird in the rafters, people, and it needs to be chased away. This idea to make love, not war. Well, we are at war whether you would make it or not. Anyone who tells you otherwise is just joining the chorus of the culture, the siren song of the culture, and it is a lie. Truth matters. Teaching matters. Doctrine matters. Satan was so convinced that it mattered, he tirelessly kept Paul from going back. He said, i got to stop this guy from going back to do some more teaching. The commander of the armies of darkness sure thought what Paul had to say was not of little consequence. He thought it was a big deal, right? And that's our first point. The world is a spiritual battlefield. Whether you recognize it or not, war is happening all around you. The world is a spiritual battlefield. The second thing Paul is going to say that will help us chase off another bird in the rafters has to do with where we draw our battle lines. So we've seen the world is a spiritual battlefield, but where are the battle lines drawn? What are we fighting for? Who is fighting who, etc.? Where are the battle lines? So observation two is take notice of the battle lines. 
take notice of the battle lines. What are Satan's goals? What is he up to? We've seen already from the previous point that he wanted to keep Paul from going back to see the Thessalonians. No doubt Satan was the one who had him run out of town in the first place. But what is Satan's goal? What's our enemy's goal? We get a clue in verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Here, Satan is referred to as the tempter. We know he tempted Jesus, right? We see that in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, passage about temptation out in the wilderness. We know that he tempts Christians as well. We see this in the Bible. Paul's concern was that Satan might convince them to abandon the faith. See how hard this is? See how difficult it is to follow Jesus? Just just give it up. Go with the world. Give it up. It's too hard. After all, this little group had only been following Jesus a short while and already many challenges had come. So apparently the goal is to get people from following Jesus. This is what the adversary, the enemy, the tempter wants. I mean, after all, that is what he did himself. The letters of Jude and 2 Peter give us a few details about what Satan and his rebels did. Or at least that's what it appears. There's some debate about exactly what those passages in those two books are getting at. But it appears that these books are telling us that there was a great uprising against God at one point and that God punished this group of angels, these rebels, for their evil. Some believe that this may be where Satan's evil course began in this great uprising in some time past. One pastor uh, writer puts it this way, quote, So Satan and the other fallen angels originate as created holy angels, who rebel against God. They reject him as their all-satisfying king and set out on a course of self-exaltation and presumed self-determination. They're going to get their own agenda and their own plans and their own things that they want to do. They don't want to follow God's plans. They do not want to be subordinate, he continues. They do not want to be sent by God to serve others. They want to have final authority over themselves They want to exalt themselves above God, end quote. So Satan wants to be in charge and he wants glory. And he cannot stand it when people give God glory and ascribe their allegiance to God. Right? This makes him angry. And this is precisely what the church of Jesus Christ does day after day. Or what we're supposed to do anyways, right? We give God all the glory and ascribe allegiance to him alone so the devil hates the church for this reason that is where the battle lines are drawn right good evil satan god this is the great war another one of the birds in the rafters of the church is on this point we tend to get distracted over current events We think the great battles are between Hamas and Israel or between Russia and America or whatever other nation or between conservatism and progressivism or faith and science or something like that. But these are all merely the surface issues. 
When you look at the scriptures, what you see is a great spiritual war between good and evil, between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, between the armies of Satan and the armies of God. Paul says in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is where the battle lines are drawn. This is why over and over again, Satan is mentioned as opposing the churches in Scripture. If you read across the New Testament and look at the various churches uh, that, where you see Satan appearing and, and giving trouble to, you'll find Satan working against the church in Jerusalem, against the church in Smyrna, and the church of Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Ephesus, Corinth. And, of course, here in Thessalonica, over and over and over again, Satan is opposing the churches of God. This is the great battle of the ages. This is where the fight is. And I want to ask you, are you in the fight? Are you in the fight? I want you to take a moment and evaluate whether or not you are in the fight. And I want to try and help you think through this for just a moment together. Many Christians are fighting, but have drawn the battle lines in all the wrong places. They think the battle lines are between political parties or between earthly nations. They think the battle lines are between believers and unbelievers. They think the battle lines are between Muslims and Jews or Muslims and Christians or Christians and Hindus or atheists or some other religious group. That is not where the battle lines are. The battle lines that are drawn up for us in Scripture are not in those places. I want to ask you, where have you drawn the battle lines? Are you even fighting? Or are you distracted by the bird up there? It's peace, peace. There's no problem. Everything's okay. One way to evaluate where you have drawn up the battle lines are the things that keep you up at night. Every one of you, I know, don't lie to me. Wakes up at night sometimes. Pops up because there's something on your mind. Something burdening you. Now some of you older folks out there have told me before, you have trouble sleeping at all. So I'm not quite to that point yet in my life, but I've, many of you have told me that that becomes a thing when you get a little older. So, But there's still, I'm sure, things that disturb you at night and just wake you up. Okay, Think about whatever those things are. What are the things that worry you and that make you pop up at night? What was Paul worried about? Verse 5 tells us that Paul was concerned for their souls. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul knew where the real battle was and he was concerned, burdened about it so much that he was waking up at night and no doubt praying, crying out, God, keep these people from the tempter. Rescue them, save them, protect them. That was what was waking him up at night because he knew where the battle was and what the strategy of the enemy was. He was concerned for their souls. Again, you see right in the text, what did Paul do? He prayed. Look at verses 9 and 10. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God? 
as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul is praying for these people, night and day, longing to go. Not just to, for a barbecue, which, yeah, that would have been fun, but to strengthen them and help them in their faith, right? Keep them from the tempter. Do what he could. Paul knew the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And he was concerned that perhaps he had fallen upon the Thessalonians. So what did he do? He prayed about it. And he sought to help them in whatever way he could. And eventually he's going to see, right? God closes a door. He opens another, opens a window. You hear that sometimes, right? So he sends Timothy. He said, I've got an idea. Let's send Timothy. But I want to say to you again, trying to help you think about, are you in the fight? What you pray about reveals where you've drawn the battle lines. What keeps you up at night? What's on your heart? What are the things when you go to God in prayer are you praying about? What do your prayers reveal about your battle lines? Are you like Paul, anxious anxious for those who might fall prey to the devil's schemes? Are you like Paul, praying for the churches, praying for the pastors, praying for believers to stand firm in the face of trial? Is that on your heart? When I was in Kenya, I was amazed at how much the believers prayed against the devil's schemes and how much they fought against Satan in prayer. They were like Paul in that regard. And I've sensed this as well in my time with the Chinese believers as well in their, in their prayers. Are we drawing our battle lines in the right places? The third thing I see here in this passage that will help to scare off one of the birds in the rafters of the church is Paul's rock-solid confidence in the Lord's victory over Satan. Right? We hear the, maybe now, right? We're hearing the bombs dropping. We're concerned. We realize it's a battlefield. And that can allow, if we're not careful, fear to creep in and anxiety. But I want you to notice, Paul is not worried at all about the outcome of this spiritual war, right? Take notice of Paul's confidence in Christ's victory over Satan. The evidence of this confidence is his indomitable joy. You can't take Paul's joy. You can't rob him of it. He's so confident and resting in Christ's goodness, what he's done, who he is in his victory. You can't steal his joy. Paul is joyful. You can hear it pouring out of the pages here. Listen to Paul as he speaks of these precious people. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul is joyful. He loves these people. And he longs to see them. The very thought of these people gives Paul great joy. But Paul's joy is rooted in the final victory of Jesus over Satan. Two times in this section, Paul mentions the coming of Jesus. Right? He's like implying here, not stating directly, though he does in other places. You're my, my boast and my joy before the Lord at his coming. I know you're going to be there with me. I'm going to be boasting and rejoicing with you. As you read this, even despite his anxiety that perhaps Satan has tempted them and led them astray, Paul's hope in Christ 
and his return remained steadfast. Paul was walking not by sight, but by faith. J.C. Ryle, in his excellent book, Holiness, that the men went through together not too long ago, says this. Listen carefully to this quote. I'm going to wrap it up here in just a moment. Let us settle it in our minds that the Christian fight is a good fight. Really good. Truly good. Emphatically good. We see only part of it yet. We see the struggle, but not the end. We see the campaign, but not the reward. We see the cross, but not the crown. We see a few humble, broken-spirited, penitent, praying people enduring hardships and despised by the world. But we see not the hand of God over them, the face of God smiling on them, the kingdom of glory prepared for them. These things are yet to be revealed. Let us not judge by appearances. There are more good things about the Christian warfare than we see. Right? So we look out there and we see the tough things and the hard things. There's so much more going on. And Paul saw the outcome. Paul saw the good with the eyes of faith. With the physical eyes, he saw hardship, war, difficulty, pain. But with the eyes of faith, he saw the victory. He was confident in Christ and in his ultimate victory over the powers of darkness. This gave Paul joy, and it should be a tremendous source of joy for us, too. What's the bird in the rafters at this point? For many, I think it's getting caught up in the asking, why? Why is this happening? Why doesn't God just destroy Satan now? Why did God create Satan in the first place? Why is this happening to me? That question can be like a bird in the rafters. I think these questions are very understandable. And I think in time, we often do get answers and God shows us some of these things. Oftentimes we don't. He didn't give Job an answer. He just said, I'm God, Job. It's basically the answer that Job got. But I think some of these questions also miss the point. Not only do those questions draw up the battle lines in the wrong places, but they ignore the fact that God is always doing something in the moment we cannot see. Take, for instance, the fact that we have this beautiful letter. Think about this for just a moment with me. Let this be to us an example of how in something frustrating and hard and aggravating and anxious, God is working something good. This letter... What was the occasion that demanded this letter? What was the occasion? Was it not that Paul couldn't get to him? He couldn't go. So he sent Timothy. Timothy comes back with a report. What does Paul do? Writes this letter. Perhaps if he would have been able to go, we would have missed out on this good word there would be no letter to the Thessalonian church. God is always working good things from the things that to us only look like problems. Paul saw a problem here, but God brought something wonderful out of it. And all the while, Paul is trusting. You get that sense here. Yes, he's anxious. Yes, he's worried. But he's filled with joy because he knows God is in control. 
And God is working something good. And is that not the heart of our faith? That when it looks black and dark and ugly, God is doing something amazing. Think of the cross, folks. That is the story of the cross of Christ. It's a daily reminder that God brings good out of evil and that God overcomes evil with good. Our greatest enemy, even greater than Satan, is sin and death. And both of those, along with Satan, were defeated decisively by Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection. That is why our cross is empty. Right? Our emblems in our churches have an empty cross because Jesus came down off the cross and three days later came out of the tomb. He's a living Christ, not a dead one. May you and I have that same outlook on this present darkness all around us. The world is a battlefield and the battle lines have been drawn, but Christ has defeated every enemy and will come again to rescue his people. Until that time, let us chase away these distracting birds in the rafters and focus on the battle at hand. Amen. Now, as we sing a song of response, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite Shuli and Yamei to come forward. They're going to lead us in Jesus paid it all. But let's pray now as we transition. God, we take great comfort in the good news that you've defeated every enemy. Sin, death, Satan, they've all been defeated at the cross and the resurrection. Lord, let that be our hope and our joy in the midst of hard times, as it was for Paul and his associates. We even feel the joy coming through this letter that despite his anxiety over the churches and his concern over Satan's activity, he is joyful. Lord, let us be a people of indomitable joy, of great joy that nothing can conquer or overcome because our God walked out of the grave. I pray that for all within earshot today. I pray that for the churches across the world, our brothers and sisters in Kenya and in China, wherever the family of God finds themselves, Lord, let them be filled with joy even now. In Jesus' name, amen.